Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Pairs of Opposites. The talk was given by Bandu Dunham on October 1st, 2022, via Zoom. Bandu is author of Creative Life and an internationally recognized glass artist and teacher. The presentation was given from his glass studio, where he screen shared and discussed pairs of opposites to work within ourselves. In the talk, he refers to his teacher, Lee Loswick, and to the teachings of George Gurdjieff and E.J. Gold. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Bandu Dunham. All right, good evening, everybody. This page that I got out of American Craft Magazine, apparently the original source is from a book called Steal Like an Artist, 10 Things Nobody Told You About Being Creative from 2012. It was sort of the inspiration for this talk. I tore this page out of the magazine and put it up on the wall of my studio. And this idea of theft being something that can be good or bad, certainly in the creative field, depending on how you're proceeding. And I've generated a couple of other lists comparing and contrasting these opposites or different kinds of opposites. So the pairs of opposites, I see them as sort of a conceptual framework to look at some things. And the Dharma or the teaching, that's all it is anyway, is a conceptual framework. The tradition I'm connected with, there's a motto, a traditional motto, which is discriminate and integrate. It's not about racial policy. It's more in the traditional yogic sense of those words. So to discriminate between what is real and what is unreal, what's true and what's false, what's transient and what's permanent, and also to integrate. So to take in something that's useful. So the idea of the Baal motto, discriminate and integrate, is that we look at different teachings and find those that are useful from whatever tradition and integrate them into our own practice. So discriminate and integrate, that's kind of the way I look at things. I find spiritual teachings everywhere. And certainly working as a creative artist, there's a lot of spiritual principles that are demonstrated in creative work. And it's up to us to find them and try to use them not just in creative work, but also in our greater evolution as a person, as a human being. Yeah, so this list of good theft versus bad theft that was my original inspiration. I'll just read it. So there's two categories, good theft versus bad theft. Under good theft, we find the word honor. Under bad theft is the word degrade. Under good theft is study. And under bad theft is skim. Under good theft is steal from many. Under bad theft, steal from one. Under good theft is credit. Under bad theft is plagiarize. Under good theft 
transform. Under bad theft, imitate. Under good theft, remix. And under bad theft, rip off. So the contrast here is between getting inspiration from other people, other people's work, and digesting that, integrating it, and making it into something your own, as opposed to just taking someone else's idea, pretending it's yours, or disguising it as if you were being original with it when you're really not. So that, to me, is the difference between good theft and bad theft. They say there's nothing new under the sun. If you're an artist, whatever you come up with, in some sense, has probably been done before. Either the general plot line or concept of what you're doing, or some aspect of it, the execution of it, has been done before. So you don't want to kid yourself that what you're doing is completely unique or original. But the thing that makes it valuable isn't so much whether it's new, in quotes, but in a sense, whether it's new to you, coming out of yourself in a way that is bringing forth something new, something that is fresh and expressive and engaging for people. So that's the difference between good theft and bad theft in a nutshell. In my point of view, of course, I'm taking my inspiration from this guy's book, Steal Like an Artist, Austin Cleon. So that's my interpretation of what he said, sort of the foundation of how I want to look at things tonight. There's two categories that we can look at and discriminate between them. What's the essence of what makes them different from each other? And then how can we pursue that as a means of engagement in life and self-exploration. Yeah, so each of these pairs, like steal from many, steal from one, you can take that pair of opposites, if you will, and unpack them and look at the differences. Stealing from many, which is under the good theft column, that's like just being inspired by a lot of different things and they come into you, you digest them, and then you put out something of your own. As opposed to stealing from one person where you just quote something and don't give credit for having quoted it, pretend it's yours, and try to profit from that in some way, whether financial or political. So I've made a couple lists of my own. I've got this one, which is dynamic versus dramatic behavior. So I thought what I'd do is go through some of these and say some of what I had in mind on these not necessarily to go through the whole list because this one's kind of long, but then maybe see what comments you guys have about these different qualities. So I wrote, we often have a choice between two approaches to a situation. While both approaches might seem to be intelligent and engaged with life, one of them carries a lot of unconscious baggage. That baggage can thwart even the best of intentions and waste a lot of energy. The results might seem exciting and emotionally satisfying in the short term, but the long-term effect is spinning one's wheels or worse. Real creativity is based on a different foundation. It can be useful in art and spiritual work and life in general to look beneath the surface and discern whether our behavior could be categorized as dynamic or dramatic. Yeah, so a lot of times people think they're being dynamic creative when they're just being dramatic. I think we probably all have the experience of doing that. Drama is like a cheap substitute for real creativity, which is what I would consider dynamism. If you've ever read the book, The War of Art, he talks a lot about resistance in creative work, creating drama 
is one of the best ways of creating resistance, which means creating distractions that pull us away from our creative work. And by creative work, he means whatever work we're here on this planet to do, the work of our soul. So you might not be an artist per se, but you're here to do something. And whatever causes the growth of our soul, Stephen Preston says, there's a resistance that automatically comes up. And one of the forms resistance takes is to get dramatic and create a lot of chaos around what we're doing and therefore avoid having to take responsibility for doing the thing we're here to do. So that's why if you look at my two columns here, under dynamic, I have diversity, which I don't just mean politically correct racial diversity. I mean, diversity of ideas, diversity of influences, diversity of themes happening in, say, a creative project. And on the other side, the other column, under dramatic, I have chaos. And I find, personally, it's always a very fine line, or can be a very fine line between diversity and chaos. It's clear what they are, but when I'm in the middle of something, I can easily cross the line from being diverse and dynamic and interesting into being chaotic. Right now in my studio, we were having open studio this weekend, and the publicly visible part of the studio is kind of cool and nice to look at. It's all very pretty. That's because we shoved everything else behind the scenes. So if you go into my private workroom in the studio, it's a holy mess. Let's see, what else did I put under here? Under dynamic, I put positive stress. Okay, there's such a thing as positive stress, which means the challenge of taking on something that makes me stretch, that extends my capacity by forcing me to do something that might be a little bit beyond my comfort zone. And also taking on more than I might conventionally think I can do. There's often ways to do more than we think we can do. As opposed to negative stress, which is in the dramatic category. Negative stress, we hear a lot about that. We're probably all familiar with it. The kind of thing that leaks energy, wastes energy, spinning our wheels, as I said in that paragraph above. So negative stress, spinning our wheels, just creating a lot of cloud, big clouds of dust, and not necessarily going anywhere. So I've got this whole long list here. And like I said, I didn't want to go through everything. You know, once you get started on doing this, it can go on forever, I think. So take a look at the list and let's discuss some of these. If there's one pair that jumps out at you, speak up or raise your hand. Uh, one I wanted to point out that might not be clear. Under dynamic, I have groovy. And under dramatic, I have ruddy. And what I mean is when you're being dynamic, you get in a groove, a creative groove where you can make something happen and it's a flow state and there's a focus to it. And the dramatic version of that is being stuck in a rut where we're just kind of going round and round on the same thing. We might think there's a lot going on, but there isn't necessarily because I'm just in a rut. So that's what I meant in that sense. Anyway, this is a good time. If anything you want to bring up relative to this list of dynamic versus dramatic. I like the one learn from the past and the opposite or the dramatic would be well on past. It's really a fine line to remember what did I learn there? What was my experience? So when I think about my parents or anything, what was in the past? because the past informed me who I am today. Mm -hmm. 
because I do not want to forget also the learning lessons. For me, it's often a, a bodily reminder how I felt in this moment. And dwell on past is really nostalgic. And that is something what is really hard for me to make a distinction and not dwell on the past and be nostalgic, especially when I look at photos of pictures from like when I was a child or from the good old times. It's like my childhood is gone or this person is gone or this place is gone. This is real. Rather go into sadness about that, go through the sadness and say, yeah, okay, I I need to grieve. Yeah, and nostalgic for me is related to I did not grieve and I did not say really goodbye. There was not really a transition there. Uh-huh. So it was not a closure there. So I'm still hanging or a part of me is hanging in the past. Yeah, I think that lack of completion, if you're involved in a dynamic process, at each stage of the process, there's some completion and some closure, and you move on to the next step. Even though things are constantly happening, there's a sense of completion, presence in the moment, and then you go on to the next moment. So then the past is still there for you to learn from, but you're in the present, as opposed to dwelling on the past where maybe there isn't closure. We've had some experience or some learning, some teaching that hasn't fully been digested. And maybe that closure is really part of digestion. Once you've digested something, then you're able to go on. I remember in one of Frank Herbert's books, he talks about the difference between sentiment and sentimentality. And he said, sentiment is if you're driving down the road and there's a dog in the road and you steer out of the way to avoid hitting the dog. Sentimentality is if you we're out of hitting the dog and you hit a person instead. You know, that's sentimentality. So yeah, sentimentality, one form of that might be dwelling on the past, being stuck there. Two things. One is it seems that the challenge is to not be afraid to live and move forward, even if you are in the dramatic section of these things because I know that sometimes I hold back and I'm like oh I'm just not going to do anything because if I do it it's going to come out in what you are listing as the dramatic and it seems like we don't work through those things unless we're willing to take that chance or in my own life I hold back and then I still have to resolve those things I might not look good at the moment but the universe will move me. That's the thing I'm holding that I can trust. If my intention is surrender, the universe will move me from the dramatic to the dynamic. Yeah, we find ourselves in the dramatic category. And I think moving through and beyond those things actually is the essence of being dynamic. Being dynamic is about continuing to evolve. A lot of them, these things in the dramatic category are kind of stuck. You know, it's the nature of them that they're kind of stuck. They're putting on a show of something meaningful or important in life. But really, they're all different forms of being stuck. Whereas on the dynamic side, they're all ways of embracing, digesting, integrating, and moving into and through life. 
Well, I'm just thinking, why is it useful to see our dramatic qualities? Is it just to become a little bit more easeful about things in life? To me, there's some suffering that occurs if I see myself in the dramatic category and really feel into it. I'm looking at firm and rigid. If I see myself rigid, my kids are grown up and they've left the nest for a while now. But, you know, when I was rigid with them, there was some painfulness to that if I really was honest with myself and saw that. But some growth occurred by being willing to look at that and suffer that. I have a little remorse about that. And hopefully over time, I became more firm when needed as opposed to rigid. Yeah, I think you answered your own question there. There is definitely value in seeing that. And it is uncomfortable in maybe what Gurdjieff would call conscious suffering, the discomfort of seeing something about myself that I might not want to see or I might prefer to be in denial about. Uh, Yeah, seeing ways in which I'm rigid and unwilling to dialogue about something as opposed to being firm, which is a position of strength. Actually, another way to think of these might be under dynamic, the dynamic column. These are all positions of strength, as opposed to the dramatic category column is positions of weakness. You could probably make that distinction about it, that discrimination about it. A lot of these, they can be ways in which we're kidding ourselves or not being honest with ourselves. I think I'm being hospitable, but I'm really being controlling. I think I'm being selfless, but I'm really being selfish. I think going to the movies when I have work to do is refreshing. Sometimes it might be, but it's often just distracting. So there's an element of self-honesty, I guess, which is what I was wanting to get to, the self-honesty of discerning whether I am being dynamic or whether I'm being dramatic. And it's not like you can never take a break from being dynamic or You never get any time off. But the idea is self-honesty, I think, here, of really being honest with oneself about what I'm up to. What am I up to? Well, Um, also, it would seem in the process of that to have some compassion for yourself. If you're really willing to own what's going on, to be self-accepting, like this is what I need to work with. This is a part of who I am right now, rather than beat yourself up, which which is dramatic. It is dramatic, yes. And dramatic things are often a form of being stuck. So beating ourselves up. It's like they say about addictive behavior, that it's a cycle. There's the addictive behavior. I eat a bunch of chocolate. So I binge. I have the binge. And then afterwards, I feel bad. So I beat myself up about it. And then I resolve to do differently. I make a vow or a pledge never to have chocolate again. Usually it's an unrealistic vow, right? And then it holds for a while. And then finally it breaks down and I just eat the chocolate. And the cycle continues. So that holding the two things, which is holding how, say, our rigidness might be really impacting the people we love, how our being stuck hurts ourselves and those around us. And at the same time, forgiveness, perspective, and observation without judgment. It seems like that is our lifelong work, to hold those two things. 
equally strongly. I often think no judgment, but then that can be easily, I don't care. I'm shutting down to the feelings of my anger, my expressions of anger really impacted people. So holding both things at the same time. Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up that way because there's this principle in the Gurdjieff work about the reconciling force. Gurdjieff was a spiritual teacher in the first half of the 20th century, of Armenian descent, those of you who aren't familiar with him. He presented a whole series of metaphysical and personal growth ideas, to put it in a very small nutshell. But one of the principles he talked about was that you can look at the universe or activity or whatever being composed of three forces. There's an affirming force, a denying force, and a reconciling force. And you can describe the universe in terms of these forces, which is sometimes useful. But in most situations, there's an affirming force and there's a denying force. There's a yes and there's a no. A human being's job, we're here to take all the contradictions in life and in some way reconcile them within ourselves. Another way you might say it is that we're confronted with paradox. And how do we hold paradox? That's our challenge, to hold paradox. I think someone said this, I don't remember who, but someone said that the sign of a mature intelligence is the ability to hold paradoxes. And if you think about it, yeah, we're confronted with a lot of paradoxes in life. And are we able to hold those? Because both things might be true, especially when you're dealing with other people. You know, both things might be true. And we need to hold them because going one way or the other is not really the solution or the answer or the most useful way to be in a situation. So that idea of the reconciling force, that's our job as human beings, is to be or manifest the reconciling force. How do we reconcile these opposites? If you look at the list, some of these opposites, how do we reconcile them? There may be things that we need to reconcile. For me, the question was, when I look at the list, uh, before I can reconcile anything, I need to recognize if I am in the dynamic or in the dramatic state. And so for me, it's like, okay, how do I know without kidding myself that I'm in a dramatic or in a dynamic state? And for me, it's always going back to my body and see, do I waste energy? Is it sucking energy or is it giving me energy in the moment? I want to feel in it first and I'm supportive in a real way, then I'm getting energy and getting joy and more energy out of it instead of being indulgent. Okay, I'm indulged something and then I'm tired from it or my energy is drained. And I said, okay, so often I can only see that in the hindsight. I can't see it in the moment. Yeah, but when I'm completely drained in the evening, I said, okay, where's that energy sucker today? Yeah. And so that is for me the most important thing to see on which side of the column I'm now. Yeah, the self-honesty of knowing. Like I might think I'm curious about people. I have a curious relationship to life. I'm interested in people when really I'm being nosy. <laughs> and being nosy can really waste a lot of energy because I'm trying to find out stuff that doesn't matter, isn't my business really anyway. And I don't really have a legitimate relationship to what's going on in this thing that I'm being nosy about. I might be trying to manipulate it in some way, 
wheedling my way into some situation or someone's life or psyche. But I think I'm just curious. Real curiosity is very energizing to be curious about life, including being curious about the opinions of people we disagree with. I want to bring in this idea of polarization, which is so much in society. Polarization tends to be really dramatic, but we can be open to things and seeing things like the honesty of making that distinction between what's dynamic and what's dramatic or the opinions that I have. I can be quite content with my opinions and feel like they're based in fact, and I don't necessarily need to change my opinions, but it can be very useful to be curious about other people's opinions. Like, why do you feel that way? What's behind that? As opposed to just looking at another person and saying, no, you you think differently than me. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Again, it goes back to that Baal motto of discriminate and integrate. Having some curiosity, enough curiosity about things to see what another person's perspective really is. Doesn't mean you have to change your mind or agree with them or something. But I've been curious sometimes when I put my computer browser on, there's this thing pocket that has all these different interesting articles they throw up that you might want to read from different sources and whatnot. Often these ones come up about how to stay engaged in a difficult conversation with someone you disagree with or how to get past polarizing opinions. And one of the main things they say is to be curious about where the other person's coming from. Keep a conversation going by asking questions like, well, what led you to this conclusion? Why do you feel this way or think this way about this circumstance? Was there a time you didn't feel that way? And what caused you to feel that way or think that way? And it's just a way of having a conversation. It's not necessarily about changing anyone's mind, but I think society is a lot healthier when we can have a space to engage people who don't necessarily agree with us, engage them with curiosity instead of judgment or out-of-hand rejection. One of the problems, of course, is that our technology tends to be very polarizing. It seems to be kind of in the nature of our technology, too. Certainly when things are being run by algorithms (laughs) to accentuate polar opposites and exploit that for profit and all that good stuff that our society revolves around. Let's see. Maybe I'll pick a pair or two here to talk about. So I've got here under dynamic, I've got spiral. And under dramatic, I've got circle. Learning often takes what seems like a cyclical form. But when we're learning and growing, it's never just a circle. It's a spiral. Themes repeat, but we're actually moving in an upward spiral. People experience that. You go through a process, you're learning something, and you seem like you're coming back to a previous place, but it's at a higher level. So we're going in a spiral, as opposed to going in a circle where you're just going round and round. Uh A friend of mine was trained as a woodworker. He said that it's really common that people will brag about having 15 years of experience or 20 years of experience as a woodworker. I think it's true in any field. I've got 25, 30, 50 years of experience. And they're calling it that, but really what they have might be one year of experience over and over again, 50 times. (laughs) So there's a difference between learning from our experience, even when the themes are repeated, as opposed to having the same experience over and over again and not really getting anywhere. Let's see, what's another good one? 
Yeah, supportive and indulgent. Someone mentioned that. And I was thinking of it in terms of my relationships to other people. So I can be supportive of another person or I can be indulgent of them. Supportive doesn't mean you're just nice to someone all the time, right? You might need to manifest some tough love as opposed to indulgent, which is just being the nice guy, but doesn't necessarily serve what someone really needs for their own growth or even just their present circumstance. You know, someone might just need a kind of honesty from us. We talked about being firm versus rigid, and there's also flexible versus spineless. <laughs> I think that's kind of self-explanatory. It's very good to be flexible, and it's not the same thing as being spineless. But spineless can be very dramatic. As some of you are probably familiar with this idea of the drama triangle that they talk about in therapeutic circles. So there's three positions that we tend to adopt when we're locked in a dramatic dynamic. There is the persecutor, there is the victim, and there is the rescuer. And those three roles tend to play out in a lot of relationships. And we shift between the different roles at different times. And a lot of human drama can just be summarized by this drama triangle. And again, it's a tool for looking at things and seeing what's going on. If you're in some kind of relationship, it can even just be between two people. You can switch between these three roles. But if you're in a relationship where you tend to just switch between these roles and that's about all that happens, then the relationship might be, if not a dead end, then there's something that could use some healing. If those roles repeat in a cyclical pattern, which often happens for people. But if we're aware of those roles, we can be a little bit more proactive about getting out of them. Because the drama triangle tends to be a rigid form. It's stuck. The drama triangle is a way of staying stuck in a dynamic that is not necessarily fruitful. But if you can see what the roles are, then you can take a step back, get some perspective, and move forward in a relationship, whatever form that might be. And when I say relationship, I don't just mean an intimate relationship. It can be between friends. It can be an employment relationship. Any situation, we often have a person who's a persecutor, there's a person who's a victim, and there's a person who comes in and rescues and feels very good about it. Under dynamic, I have quick to forgive. And under dramatic, we have quick to judge. Again, maybe kind of self-explanatory. I'll go on to my other list. So this is another list. Fierce versus violent communication. Respectful communication is not the same as repressing emotion, energy, strength, or intensity. Anger sometimes signals clarity or a great need on the part of the speaker. We can consider what distinguishes violent communication, which cuts off connection and shuts down relationship, from strong or fierce communication, which is useful, vulnerable, and can increase connection and relationship. So maybe I'll just read through these pairs. There's only a few of them, and we can see if there's things to discuss. Under the fierce column, we have anger. Under the violent column, we have rage. Under the fierce column, we have dedication. Under violent, we have investment. Under fierce, there is insight. Under violent, there is judgment and criticism. Under fierce, there is self-honesty, self-awareness. 
Under violent, there is focus on others. Under fierce, there is friendship. And under violent, there is entanglement. Under fierce, we have responsibility. Under violent, we have blame. Under fierce, there is spacious. Under violent, there is claustrophobic. Under fierce, we have honest, like fierce honesty. Under violent, we have cruel. Under fierce, we have courageous. Under violent, we have cowardly. Under fierce, there is compassion. Under violent, there is disconnection or cutting off. Dedication, investment, you could explain that a little bit. Yeah. You can be fiercely dedicated to something. Like I'm fiercely dedicated to my art form or fiercely dedicated to uh, you know a business. You get an idea for a business enterprise. And anyone who's run a business knows there are times when you just have to be fiercely dedicated and plug ahead and make something happen. And the opposite of that or the alternative to that, I have investment. And by investment, I mean emotional investment that doesn't really view circumstances realistically. There's this thing that they call the sunk loss fallacy, where you're working on something, a project maybe, and it's not working out. There's something wrong. You think you can fix it. You might be able to fix that thing and there's something else that's wrong. And you keep investing a lot more time and energy into trying to fix something, repair it, make it work. And it's just not happening. We probably all have the experience of trying to fix something, whatever it is, a project, an object, a relationship. The more you fix it, the worse it gets. But you think you're going to fix it. Keep trying to fix it. It's that sunk loss because we've already invested so much in it. We're afraid to just walk away from the investment because that admits defeat. <laughs> but I'm reminded that a lot of movie plots are all about the guy who just keeps hammering away at something. You know what I mean? Yeah. And sometimes that person turns out to be a hero, and sometimes they turn out to be a sucker. <laughs> well, if you see these qualities in yourself or in others, first of all, it seems like a lot of times the human condition is such that we don't really see these qualities in ourselves. We feel righteous about our rage or about our judgment of something. And if we do have some self-reflection about these things and are able to see that, well, maybe there's something about me that is responsible here, then the tendency seems to be to want to change it or to get rid of the mm -hmm. thing. Would you say something about how you might work with these things and how you might use them? Because it doesn't seem like those things go away necessarily. Hmm. They're kind of built into the hardware somewhere. Yeah, they're hardwired in us. Yeah, I think the point is not to get stuck in the negative column. We all spend time in the violent category, right? But if we're kidding ourselves, if I'm kidding myself, I think I have a fierce friendship with someone when really what I have is an entanglement with them. If I can see that there's actually some elements of entanglement, and also in any relationship, there might be elements of entanglement, and there might be really wonderful elements of it. So 
it can also be a way of purifying what's there. In my art career, in my business, there are definitely ways in which I'm invested in the negative sense of just being not willing to get off it, being invested and just stuck in a certain way, in a rut. And there's other ways in which I'm very dedicated to it. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. So I think it can be really healthy to have questions. Use these as a way of questioning ourselves to go back to the idea of being dynamic. If I'm questioning where I'm at, then I've got a better chance of moving forward and not being stuck in something, as opposed to just being self-righteous, being very righteous that I understand the picture. I've lived in community in various forms for a while. And, you know, that's saying that it takes a village to raise a child. There are a number of children. Sometimes kids would say, don't talk to me. You're not my mom. It's good to internally be willing to, to take feedback that maybe reframes something that I think is really wonderful and fierce. My fierce dedication might in some ways just be an investment that's kind of stuck. Also, if you could talk about intent or what it is that distinguishes these two things. Is it our intent? Is it our aim? Is it whether we have love behind these things? Well, I think self-honesty is a big part of it. And I guess you're not necessarily going to have self-honesty if you don't have an intent to be self-honest. Being right tends to just be kind of a rigid, stuck-in-place thing. My teacher Lee used to talk about, you know, spiritual teachers talk a lot about ego. And one of the ways he defined ego was just the need to dominate and control. There's probably a lot of ways we can describe ego, but the need to dominate and control, the need to be right, to be right, and especially to have other people know that I'm right, but sometimes it's just enough if I know that I'm right in the sense of an investment or rage, being sure that I'm right. That's kind of a claustrophobic place to be in. If I'm sure that I'm right, I don't care what you think, I am just right. My ideas are right, because if they weren't, I wouldn't have thought of them, because I'm the smartest person in the world. Of course, I'm the smartest person in my world, for sure. So if I have an idea, it is definitely right. And that is a very strong and rigid framework in which I might choose to live. And it can actually be pretty claustrophobic, because I'm not going to let another point of view in there. As opposed to being spacious, spacious has talked a lot about in different spiritual traditions. It can be as simple as just experiencing the space of the universe. If I'm freaked out, stressed out, which can be a pretty claustrophobic state, sometimes just chilling for a second, taking a breath, being present, feeling the space around me can just break the grip of that claustrophobic state of mind, which is very tight it's tight and it's got fear in it and it wants something to be very different. When you're claustrophobic, you feel you're in a confined space and you want out and you can't get out. Whereas spaciousness from a spiritual or even an emotional point of view, I guess, is just to feel that things are okay as they are, uh, to be present with what's present in the moment. There's a spiritual teacher, a French spiritual teacher who talked about Accepting what is as it is here and now. And that was one of his main teachings. He would always come back to that idea. 
to accept what is as it is here and now. Now, that doesn't mean that you might not want or need to change things. It doesn't mean that things are not subject to change or improvement. But it means that what's going on right now is, in fact, what's going on right now. And you can try to be in denial about it. You can wish you hadn't said the thing you just said. I saw a video of him giving a talk, and he was talking about having something precious, like a glass vase, a precious crystal vase, and you drop it, and it smashes on the floor. And your first response is, no. And he said, yes. You know, you have to say yes to the fact that this thing happened. It doesn't mean you like it, but nothing you say or think or feel is going to change the fact that that thing just shattered on the ground. You're not going to go anywhere if you are in denial about what just happened or what is present right now. So there is a broken, smashed, precious face on the ground. Might be possible to fix it. I don't know. But in the moment, you have to accept that this breakage has happened. It would be insane to do otherwise, right? But we kind of do otherwise all the time. We go into denial about things, which is kind of claustrophobia. I go into my own little world. I cut that person off, but they deserved it because they were going so slow. And then I'm stuck in this place of justifying myself. I have to go around in this loop of justifying myself. It has this repetitive quality. It's about self-justifying and reinforcing, as opposed to being spacious, where it's like, yeah, I cut that person off. Yeah, maybe that wasn't the best thing to do. Fortunately, you know, I didn't cause an accident, and you can maybe go on. I was also thinking that spaciousness versus the claustrophobic is that when you're in that claustrophobic state, you think there is only one way to get out of the situation or one way to fix something. And then you're jamming and jamming that one square block into the circle hole and it's not going to work. But because we don't have that spaciousness and whatever's behind it, the acceptance of what is or self-compassion or compassion for the circumstance, we just keep jamming and jamming. That's that sunk loss fallacy. It's throwing good money after bad or throwing good energy after bad. Spaciousness, giving another person the benefit of the doubt. Maybe you say something to me that it's true, but there's also mixed in with it, there's a little bit of you doing your thing, whatever that thing might be. And it's kind of more grown up of me if I can have the spaciousness to say, okay, well... What you're saying is 80% true, and maybe there's 20% I disagree with, but that 20% doesn't entitle me to brush off the other 80%. That's how it looks to me. I'm not saying anything. Silence can be very powerful. One teacher that I'm familiar with, E.J. Gold, he said that the most powerful transformative influence in people's life is if there's someone else in the environment who kind of sees what they're up to. So if I'm running my trip, (laughs) which might be any number of things, and no one says anything necessarily, no one has to confront me about it. Just the fact that there are people in the environment who know what I'm up to, and they don't need to be like rolling their eyes. They don't need to be groaning, any of that stuff. Just the awareness on a subtle level is very transformative. That's one of the reasons why my teacher recommended household living. 
people living together in groups because there's a lot of different perspectives in one place. No one has to necessarily confront each other, but the awareness, it helped create an environment in which we raise each other's awareness. And that's just a subtle benefit of people being together. In regards to feedback, I think that unless it's a specialized situation, that there needs to be relationship with the person, something like friendship. Mm. And without that, it's way more likely to go off the rails, anything that you have, unless you're very skilled and the timing is right. And also, it seems like it's important to be able to wait for the right time. Like the universe will invite something when the time is right. It will just sort of happen as opposed to this needs to be delivered now. Just sit with it and wait. And if it's useful, the universe will provide the time. But I think it's important to have our friendship with somebody before attempting to deliver difficult messages. And a lot of things to question yourself. Can this be changed? Does it really need to be addressed? If I'm the one who thinks something needs to be changed, is it really for me to look at what it is that I'm wanting to express and whether it's... Does anybody remember that thing? Don't speak unless it's true, necessary. The first thing is kind. Is it kind? Is it useful? Is it necessary? And is it true? These four things. Okay. So how many things can you check that off on? (laughs) Right. And yeah, you mentioned this feeling like, oh, I have to say this thing right now. That's a very claustrophobic feeling. It also reminds me, one of the definitions of neurosis is the inability to see options. So if I'm very sure that I have to say, I have to express my opinion right now, that's not a very spacious place to be in. And certainly there are times when something does need to be expressed urgently right now. But a lot of the time, what I think is urgency is just a form of claustrophobia or neurosis or something. Whereas if I could be spacious, maybe this thing could wait a little bit, or there might be a right time to make this communication that's better than this moment. Am I just passing along my opinion about something and it's not solicited? A respectful option, if I need to comment, we can talk about it if I need to, I'll ask, do you mind if I make a suggestion? Do you mind if I comment on what you just told me? Because they told me something. You know, it's probably a number of phrases to use, but just ask. For me, the most powerful way of giving feedback is actually not giving feedback, but to talking more about how I feel. So I feel upset or angry because something happened. Rather than criticizing, firstly, stopping and really checking in with myself, how do I feel right now? and then expressing the feelings. And I think that comes from a place of honesty and truth and not criticism, not anger, not hurt. And I think that's the most powerful way to talk to create change as well, because if somebody tells me very honestly how they're feeling, that really makes me reflect. If somebody comes to me with anger or feedback, especially if there's not a relationship, most times it doesn't even go in. It's a total waste of time. But really speaking from the heart 
and how something affects oneself, I think is very powerful. Yeah, thank you. I statements are very useful. I went to therapy for a long time with a therapist um, and my therapist always uh, expressed to me that one, you really shouldn't say things when you're in a very heated state. I guess that would be more of a claustrophobic position and that you should sit back, reflect, because that will be able to give you more clarity on how to deliver it to the other individual so that it's perceived in a way that's understand and empathized with rather than feeling like an attack. And then on the other side of that, when you are receiving feedback, sometimes taking a step back, that person might not necessarily be aggressively telling you. You might just be perceiving it that way because you realize that you have something to work on. But when someone shines light on that, it makes it a lot more difficult. Great. Thank you. Yeah, I think in general, the more I'm sure I'm right, the more I should probably step back and double check my interpretation of what's going on. My faith in my interpretation of what's going on is very touching, but (laughs) may or may not be misplaced. Well, if you don't just speak and you take 10 seconds or so, you just hold the energy of that, that creates some inner heat for you but also you're able to contain that energy and then reflect on it and not just react. Certainly in yoga, and I think in some other traditions, they talk about the value of holding the energy. If I've got some intensity of some state I'm in, the impulse, like I've got to say it, or I've got to eat that chocolate bar or whatever, not acting, like restraining myself, refraining from expressing or doing this thing that I feel like I've got to do, the heat that's created just from having a sort of discipline over what I'm doing. That heat itself is like a spiritual energy that can build. This is a very simple practical example, just kind of holding your tongue. You might say the same thing, but if you say it in five minutes, you might say it better. 